If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab those. Well, good morning to all. I'm honored to be here with you all. It's an honor and a responsibility and uh, a f- somewhat fearful of preaching the Scripture. Just a great responsibility that we have. I'm humbled to be called to the holy task. It, also, happy Valentine's Day. Uh, if you have your Bible, turn in those to John chapter 8. Today, we're reading from John chapter 8. If you remember, John 7, 8, and 9 is what I've been calling uh, the Feast of Booths Discourse. Those three chapters center around the annual feast that the Jewish nation observed. And what we see in this section, we see really a lot of opposition begin to build. And really, the Jews in our passage today, really, what I would say, kind of play uh, dirty. They, they have this passive-aggressive comment, which we will talk about in my sermon this morning after we read and after the worship. But in the midst of this section, John 7, 8, and 9, not only do we see the opposition build from his brothers and the Pharisees and the Jews, but then we also see Jesus unfold to the nation of Israel who he truly is. That he is Yahweh, that he is the pillar of fire, that he is the light of the world, that he is the solution to sin. And then in today, what Jesus does in part 7 of the Feast of Booze Discourse, he draws a distinction between what a false disciple is and what a true one really looks like. So what is the one requirement of a true disciple of Christ? Notice in John chapter 8, we will begin in verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Then some other Jews answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been enslaved to anyone. What's wrong with that statement? Uh, how is it that you say that you, you will become free? And Jesus answered, The truth truth I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the servant of sin. The servant does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you certainly will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father, lowercase f. Verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father, lowercase f. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. Uh, what? We have one father, God. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, then you would love me. For I proceed forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he who sent me. Why then do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. For you are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the deeds of your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. It does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you condemns me? Which one of you convicts me of sin? For if I speak the truth, why then do you not believe in me? Verse 47, this is where he brings it all together. He was of God, hears the very words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them, because you are not from God. Amen. Thank you.
John 8, 47. He who is of God hears the words of God. Lord, that is the prayer of my heart, that you would take a ball of dust that you have deemed as worthy and loved enough to save, and that you would speak the words that you would have us to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Allow me to ask you the question, and I would like if you would raise your hand, uh, how many of you uh, claim to be a follower of Christ? Amen. That's awesome. What's the one requirement? What is the one thing every follower of Christ must do? What do you think about a great athlete? And a great athlete needs many things, but must have one thing. A great athlete needs to be intelligent, needs to know their sport. A great athlete needs to be strong and big. A great athlete needs good fundamentals. A great athlete needs a great work ethic. They need lots of practice, coaching, and teammates. A great athlete needs determination, perseverance. A great athlete needs to have many things, but must have one thing. Athleticism, right? You must be able to run fast and jump high, which was always my issue in high school. I was built like a freight train, okay? But it, because it doesn't matter how tall you are, it doesn't matter how big you are, it doesn't matter how intelligent you are, it doesn't matter how great your work ethic is or how much practice you do, you must be athletic in order to be a great athlete. In the same way, a true disciple of Christ needs many things, but must have one thing. A true disciple needs to read their Bibles. They need to pray. A true disciple needs to avoid sin and needs to love. They need to share their faith. They need authentic community around them to encourage them. A true disciple of Christ needs to serve. They need to be missional. They need to surrender their life. They need to deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow Him. They need to have faith. A true disciple needs to remain in Christ. They need to stay free from the stains of sin. A true disciple of Christ needs many things, but must have one thing. And that is the question. The question I have today is, what is the one thing? What is the one requirement that a true follower of Jesus Christ must have? What is that one thing? That is the attempt of my heart this morning is to answer that. So if you have your Bible, turn once again in those to John chapter 8. Today, Jesus kind of makes, uh, draws a line in the sand. He kind of makes a distinction between what a true follower is and what a false disciple is. And he, we kind of see three traits of each, right? We see three traits of a false disciple and three traits of a true disciple. But there's one trait that supersedes them all. That is the foundation of everything that a true disciple must have. So if you have your Bible, turn in those again to John chapter 8. And we will begin with the first trait of a true disciple in verse 31. 
Notice how John 8, 31 begins. It says this, so, the Greek word there is actually the word un, or therefore. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Right? So a true disciple of Jesus Christ remains in his word. We talked about this a little bit last week, right? We see that there is a cause and effect. That the cause is the first phrase in verse 31 with three effects later on. Cause. That if we remain in Christ's word, then you have three effects. We are true disciples. You will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. A true disciple continues or remains in Christ's word. A true disciple that remains in Christ's word will know the truth and the truth will make you free. But remaining in Christ's word is more than reading the Bible. There are a lot of Christians that live throughout churches all around the world that read the Bible on a regular basis but have no fruit in their lives whatsoever. Why is that? So we see the first requirement of a true disciple, or first trait, I should say. And then we see kind of this, uh, this intertangled dialogue that happens in John chapter 8. There's this kind of ping-ponging back and forth, which makes it notoriously difficult for a preacher to outline, by the way. So, so you have the first trait of a true disciple, but then you have the false disciples. They kind of come on the scene, and they kind of interject in the midst of this discourse. Notice verse 33. The Jews, I think there is the distinction between verses 31 and 32 and 33. I believe that the false disciples begin to speak here in verse 33. The Jews answered him and said, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? A true disciple remains in Christ and a false disciple puts their faith in the past. What's the problem there? I mean, just notice what they say in verse 33, that these Jews said, We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? What's the problem with that statement? That they're living with revisionist history. They're living in uh, a fantasy land, in law-law land, right? They live in self-denial. What about the book of Exodus? I mean, just Jesus could have smashed it right there. What about the book of Exodus where the Israelites were enslaved to the nation of Israel for 400 years? What's interesting here in the original language is we have never been enslaved to anyone. Enslaved there is a perfect tense uh, Greek verb, a past event with continuing ongoing results. So the Jews are saying that there is no event or time in the past that we have ever been enslaved to anyone. Wait a second. Have they not read the book of Exodus? Right? They were enslaved to the nation of Egypt for 400 years. But it gets weirder. They live in, the revisionist history gets stranger because, I mean, what, what annual feast did they just get done remembering? The, the Feast of Booths, right? I mean, we talked about in John chapter 7, 8, and 9. That literally just two days ago, they remembered the Feast of Booths, which commemorates what? They're, they're 40 years in the desert. Which happened after what? Their escape out of Egypt. So wait a second. I can just imagine Jesus is sitting there. And they say that we have never been enslaved. And Jesus, wait, what? I, if I was Jesus, I'd be, excuse me, time out. Did you forget about the 400 years in Egypt? Oh, and you just remembered that you just escaped 
from slavery yourselves, but you choose to have revisionist history. A false disciple has revisionist history. They do not learn from the past, and it seems to me that a false disciple of Jesus Christ remembers the past in a certain skewed view. But this problem of remembering the past with revisionist history, remembering the past in a certain way, is not just a problem in the first century, but it's a major problem in the culture today. It is especially an issue of remembering the past in a certain way, having faith in, the, in, a, in a previous event. It is certainly a problem in today's church. Let me share a story uh, some 20 years ago or so now, which makes which is just weird for me to just say anything was 20 years ago. But anyways, moving on. Okay, so like 20 years ago, I, was, uh, I had a young man that came to my small group. He was a 16-year-old or so, 14-year-old uh, or so, came to my small group here at Calvary Bible Church up in the FLC, room 9, if you want to know, just right at the ramp where the young adult group is uh, these days. And this young man, I, I, every time a, a teenager would come to my small group for, for the first time, I would kind of... Uh, pin him up against the wall and just badger the poor soul. But anyways, I'm not sure why I did that. Um, but I, so this young guy came to my small group, and I kind of cornered him, and I asked him, okay, how are you saved? You know, how do you become a Christian? And this young man said, well, I was baptized as a baby. Wrong answer, right? But what was he doing? He was justifying his current salvation based on a previous event. I believe that that epidemic is still in today's church, that we oftentimes let a past event convince us that we are saved in the present. And just because you walked the aisle, just because you prayed a prayer, just because you grew up in a Christian home, or just because a preacher told you you were a Christian does not mean you are. What does the scripture say? 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 says this. It says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Sometimes we as Christians, we are convinced because of some event that happened 15 years ago that we are a Christian even today. But that could not, that might not be the cause. That might not be the truth. That you might be headed for complete and eternal doom because you put your faith in the past. If you are relying on a past event to convince you that you are saved in the present, if you are relying on baby baptism or a prayer that you prayed or your memory or the fact that you grew up in a Christian home to convince you that you are saved, then you should practice 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, which says to examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, test yourself. In a sense, true disciples, true followers of Jesus Christ, really never stop believing. Friends, listen, I can get saved every day. (laughs) Because every day that I read the scripture, every day that I pray, every day that I walk in here as the pastor of Calvary Bible Church, I am still convinced of the truth. That I am a believer in Jesus Christ. That not just because of some event that happened 25 years ago, when I was 10 years old on my mother's floor, am I convinced that I am saved, but also even today that my faith has not stopped. That every day, I, in a sense, kind of examine myself. I believe. 
A false disciple convinces themselves that because of a past event that they are justified in the present. But then notice kind of the ping-pong nature of this passage. We see the true disciple, and then we see the false disciple puts their faith in the past. But then Jesus kind of calls them out on the problem. Notice verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free... You will be free indeed. It seems that in verse 33 that the Jewish nation, the Israelites, are focused on their physical slavery, but Jesus does not refer to their physical enslavement, but their spiritual enslavement to sin. And what do we know to be true? That if you have you if you studied the book of Romans at any length, then you have probably come to Romans five, six, seven, and eight. That you have come to the realization that without Jesus Christ, what are we? That we are truly slaves to sin, hopeless to conquer sin and its effects without Christ. But with Christ, as Christians, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are declared innocent, guiltless of your sin, and cut free from its chains. Notice. This, a true disciple, is free. They remain in Christ's word, and they are free from the chains of sin and death. But if you have your text before you, what I want you to do real quick is I want you to look at your translation, and I want you to look at all of the times that a therefore is used in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 47. How many times is the word therefore used from John chapter 8 verse 31 to verse 47? If you're using the New American Standard Version, then there's only one. But as I was unpacking the original language, there's actually three. In the Greek, in the Koine Greek, which is the Bible's original language, there are three therefores from John chapter 8, verses 31 through 47. There's one in verse 31, one in verse 36, and one in verse 38. What is a therefore doing? A therefore is what, it, what I say, my mentor always said this and stuck with me. A therefore is there for a reason. What it does is anytime it's used in the original language, it is saying, because of what I just said, this is the conclusion that I want you to arrive at. Notice verse 31 again. He said he wants the Jewish nation to know that if they remain in his word, they will be set free. In verse 36... It says the word so, but really in the original language, that's un, which means therefore. And what does Jesus want them to know? He wants the Jewish nation to know that the Son, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. What is he saying there? He wants the Jewish nation to know, and us today know, that the Son guarantees their freedom. That the Son is more powerful than the chains of sin, and that if they would just believe in Jesus Christ, that they would be forever cut free from its chains. But I want you to notice what it says in the last little phrase there in verse 36. It says, and you will be free indeed. The word will be free is in the Greek mood, of indic- is in the Greek indicative mood, which is, okay, Byron, you're getting a little bit on, okay. The Greek indicative mood is the mood of 100% certainty. 
that if they would be true disciples, if they would believe in Jesus Christ, that they would certainly be free indeed. It is guaranteed. If we are true disciples of Christ, what is our reality? That we are free from the chains of sin. That we do not have to bow the knee to sin. We do not have to serve it as our master. Why? Because in verse 35, Jesus proclaims that he is more powerful than sin. That he kicks sin out of the house of our lives, out of our, the enslavement of our soul. And that the Son remains forever. Our freedom from the eternal weight of sin is broken. We are free despite our struggles to serve it and to bow the knee to the idolatry and into the American way of life. Friends, when you believe in Jesus Christ, that at that moment you are forever free from the chains of sin and death. It is guaranteed that we do not have to bow the knee to sin any longer. That if there is a sin that you feel chained to, if there is a sin that you feel like you cannot cut and remove from your life, and if the enemy has convinced you that that is true, then he is lying. And he is a father of lies, as Jesus unpacks here. Because as I see it, Jesus, the Son of God, is more powerful than the chains of sin and the father of this world. And if he tells me that I am free from sin, then I am free from sin. A true disciple remains in Christ's word, is free. A false disciple puts their faith in the past. In verse 32, but then a false disciple puts their faith in something else entirely. And I want you to notice as this uh, passage is kind of going along, the temperature of the room begins to increase. There begins to be, they get angrier and angrier and angrier, right? So this notice kind of the temperature, and it concludes at the end of John 8 with them trying to kill him. But notice verse 37, notice what a true or false disciple puts their faith in. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, verse 37, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the words which I have seen with my Father, capital F. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your Father, lowercase f. They answered and said, if Abraham is our Father, what are they putting your faith in? Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your Father. What does Jesus distinguish here? He distinguishes their father from his father, lowercase f and uppercase f. And what is he saying? That if Abraham is their spiritual father, then they would do the deeds of Abraham. Okay? So what is the deeds of Abraham? Faith. That if if Abraham was not only their physical father, but their spiritual father, then they would do the deeds of Abraham, which is to believe in Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. That if Abraham truly is your spiritual forefather, then you would believe in me because I am true. But Abraham had to do something even before he believed. There was something that occurred in his life even before he placed his faith in the Lord. 
A false disciple puts their faith in the past and in men. The nation of Israel believed that they are justified, they are declared innocent before God because their father Abraham is their physical forefather, but, but they are not justified before God because of how they grew up or because of their ethnicity or because of circumcision, but they are justified before God by the blood of Christ and by faith in Him. Period. And yes, Abraham did have faith. He's known kind of as the father of faith. But there's something that had to happen in Genesis 11 and 12, even before Abraham placed his faith in God. Notice, what is the requirement of every true disciple of Jesus Christ? The distinction between a false disciple and a true one, the one thing that separates the crowd is unpacked in verses 41 through 48. Notice the central distinction between a true follower and a false one. Verse 41. And the Jewish nation said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father. I want to pause for just a few moments before I really give you the answer to what is the one requirement of a true follower of Jesus Christ, and I, and I want you to kind of notice the passive aggressiveness. Okay? Notice, notice what, what, I'm going to reread verse 41, and I want you to really answer, what are they really saying to Jesus? They, verse 40, They said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one Father God. Now, if I'm honest, I didn't initially notice what they're really, their passive-aggressive comment until I read the original language. But in my opinion, after unpacking the original language and after kind of studying this passage all week long, I think they're telling Jesus what? We were not born of fornication. What are they saying to Jesus? In my opinion, they're calling him an illegitimate child. Why do I say that? Because think about the Jewish nation at this point. They know who Jesus is. According to John chapter 6, verse 42, they know that Jesus is, his father is Joseph and his mother is Mary. They know his brothers. They probably know all of the stories of what happened in Jesus' birth. And guess what happened? That Mary was pregnant outside of marriage. If you remember that, that Joseph and Mary were engaged, betrothed to be married, but then all of a sudden Mary is pregnant and because, not because of something that she did, but because of the Holy Spirit. And then it seems to me that in verse 41, they're bringing that up. They're saying, well, well our father is Abraham, and you were born out of wedlock. <laughs> That's what they're saying. Uh, who is Jesus? If you've been here for any length of time, then you know that Jesus is God. Ego Amy, Yahweh. He is, I am who I am. Jesus is the God who parted the Red Sea, the God who was the pillar of fire in the desert, and who is the pillar of fire today, leading people out of the domain of darkness of sin. Jesus is the one who created the world who authorized the death of Achan in Joshua 7. Jesus is Yahweh, who slew the Moabites after Jehoshaphat prayed. Jesus 
brought down the kingdom of Babylon. He raised Jericho's walls to rubble. Who, Jesus is the God who humbled the nation of Egypt through ten plagues. Jesus is God. And they're telling him in John chapter 8 that he is an illegitimate child. Now, let me ask you the question. If you have been putting up with the Israelites for two and a half years, and then they bring this up, and you are Yahweh, guess what I would be doing? I'd be turning them into insects and ants and pigs or, or evaporating them. Because, and we know that Jesus can, because surely if Jesus can take a Happy Meal and feed 20,000 people, surely if Jesus has control over the waves and over the sea, if surely if Jesus can walk on water, then He can surely do whatever He wants to these people who are being, having this passive-aggressive comment. But instead, what does Jesus do? He extends patience and grace, and love, and he doesn't evaporate them into smithereens. I'm not sure I would do the same. But in the midst of this passive-aggressive comment that they tell Jesus, what Jesus then says in verses 42 through 47, he then draws the line. He makes that one distinction of what it means to be a false disciple and a true one. Notice verses 42 through 47. And as I read this section, I want you to notice what human sense is mentioned nine times. Verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I am not, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he who sent me. Why then do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and, do not, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Verse 45. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? He is perfect, impeccable. If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not from God. What is the central distinction between a true disciple and a false one? A true disciple hears God. Verse 47, he who is of God hears the words of God. A true disciple remains in Christ's word, is free, and hears the Father, capital F. But then notice verses 43 through 47. Notice the false disciple. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. A true disciple hears the Father, and a false disciple hears their father. A true follower of Jesus Christ hears God. That is the most foundational requirement of a follower of Jesus Christ. But is that true? Right? I mean, is it true that the most foundational component of a follower of Jesus Christ is that you must hear God? 
Now, I would imagine if you've been in church for any length of time, you're probably arguing with me in the back of your head. Because what about faith? And what about self-denial? What about offering your body as a living holy sacrifice? What about, what about all these other requirements? Friends, listen to me. Just like a good athlete, that there are lots of things that we need, but there is one thing that we must have, and we as believers in Jesus Christ, we must hear God. Because how can we obey God if we cannot hear His Word? How can we deny ourselves? How can we find the direction that the Lord has for us if we cannot hear the Lord? Hearing God is the most important discipline in the Christian life. What does the Scripture say? Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So what comes first? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. John eight forty seven. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. John ten twenty six and 27. But you do not believe me, because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Think about it. Abraham heard the call of God before he left his country. Paul heard the voice of Jesus before believing. The disciples heard, follow me, before they followed. Moses heard God speak out of the burning bush before he obeyed. The prophets heard the word of the Lord before pronouncing them. The most basic requirement of a true disciple of Jesus Christ is that we hear God. But friends, just listen to me. I, uh, there is a uh, disease. There is a plague in churches today. That some of us are very diligent to read our Bibles without hearing it. That sometimes we read our Bibles just out of a sake of some attempt at self-righteousness but without ever asking the Lord, Lord, what do you have for me to learn today? Perhaps we, as true followers of Jesus Christ, when we read the Scripture, when we come to church, when we pray, that instead of just going through some self-righteous routine, maybe we should take a step back and just ask the Lord, what do you have for me to hear today? And what does James chapter 1 say? Prove yourselves not to be hearers of, just, just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. But then the million dollar question I have for this morning is how do we hear God, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of... Okay, so if verse 47 says this, He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. So if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, then you must hear God. That is my point today. But then the million dollar question is, okay, Byron, how do I hear him? The Lord does not typically speak in an audible voice. Now, I cannot limit God from speaking in an audible voice. He is sovereign. He is far more powerful than I am. I would just say that God doesn't speak in an audible voice in, in a normative setting. Now, let me say this way. If you hear God speak to you every day in an audible voice... Uh, I have a, a loony bin for you to be in. Sorry, just kidding. Um, but how does God speak? How do we hear God? Four ways. 
Number one, we hear God through his word. That we have God's completed word that has been perfectly preserved 2,000 years later. That the primary way that the Lord speaks to his people is through his scripture. But friends, listen to me. When you read the Bible, when you hear a sermon, when you pray, when you go through your annual reading, do not just do that out of some attempt to feel good about your life. Do it out of an attempt to hear from the Lord and what he has for you that day. Number one, we hear the Lord through his word. Number two, we hear him through our circumstances. I would imagine every single one of us in this room has at one time or another felt like the Lord has spoken through a circumstance. That you go to the Lord and you ask Him for an answer to prayer, and then all of a sudden a door is slammed in your face. Right? Amen? Anybody ever experienced that one before? The Lord speaks primarily through His Word, but He also can speak through circumstances. Number three, the Lord speaks through prayer and His Spirit. Now, this one gets a little bit fuzzy, right? That in conservative churches, this is the one we kind of short-circuit at, right? But he does. The Lord speaks through prayer and his spirit that the Lord impresses upon our heart certain actions that we should probably take. And But listen, listen, listen. Anytime you think you hear from the Lord, guess what should always be true every time? That what you hear from the Lord should always align with the Scripture. If the Lord tells you, if you feel like the Lord is telling you to go kill somebody, well, he's not, okay, because it doesn't align with the scripture. If you feel like the Lord is speaking to you and you feel like your circumstances are aligning in a certain way, then it should and must align with his word. But then the Lord speaks to us with number four through others. The Lord speaks to us through others. But if we live life like an island, then the waves of others cannot reach the shores of our ears. I could share of many stories of when the Lord has used his saints to prevent me from driving off a cliff. Uh, that when I first started here at Calvary Bible Church, there was a decision that I was this close to making. I was about to cancel a very popular event here. And uh, Ruth Bates, who's my friend who I dearly miss seeing on a regular basis because of COVID. She wisely pulls the young preacher who was 32 at the time, and she says, you know, Byron, you know, I know you want to do this, but it's really not a good idea. And so, unfortunately, the Lord took Ruth Bates and all of her wisdom and spoke truth into my life. The Lord speaks to his people. The Lord speaks to you. If you are a true follower of Him, then you must hear what He says. The Lord speaks primarily through His Word, through others, through circumstance, and through prayer and His Spirit. Friends, let us not be false disciples who believe they are close to God but are far. Let us not be false disciples who put their trust in a past event or in men. Let us not be false disciples who are led astray by the father of this darkened world. But let us be true disciples who remain in Christ's word. Let us be true disciples who live free 
not bowing the knee to idolatry or to sin, but who live free from the chains of sin and death, who live without ropes holding them back, who are eagerly pursuing a righteous life. Let us be true disciples who hear God through His Word. And let us, not, let us be true disciples who do not clutter their mind with the noise of the world, but that would notice in their life the input that is coming into their ears and into their mind, and they would carve away anything that is of unrighteousness, and they would carve it away, and they would place in it instead God's Word and His purity and His righteousness. Let us be true disciples that hear God. I'll close with a quote. It says this, When God speaks, when God speaks, He does not give new revelation about Himself that would contradict what He has already revealed in Scripture. Rather, God speaks to give application of His Word to the specific circumstance in your life. When God speaks to you, He is not writing a new book of Scripture Rather, he is applying to your life what has already been said in his word. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, at the end of the message every week I present the gospel, and I hope that it does not ever grow old. <clears throat> that you and I are sinners. Can I get an amen to that one? That we make mistakes, that we lie, cheat, and steal. We need the grace of God, that we cannot earn our way into the presence of a perfect God. And that because we are sinners, that Christ came and he died to be the payment for my sin that I could never atone. And if I would believe in him, I would be eternally saved and changed forever. If you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, he offers you the gift of salvation by faith. That if you would believe in him, you will be saved. If you have never trusted Christ here in just a moment, when the last song, when Thomas leads us, we will have a couple of prayer partners up front. Herb and Linda will be here this morning. And if you would like to talk with somebody about salvation, if you would like somebody just to pray for you and to minister to you, if you would like somebody just to talk to, kind of about something that's going on in your life, that's what they are here for. I would encourage you to take the opportunity and bow with me in a word of prayer, and then we will surrender to that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, I, you know, I, uh, I pray that my friends in this room heard, <laughs> that they heard your truth. That they would be true disciples and followers of you, that they would open their ears to hear you day by day. Lord, I pray that we would not go through the Christian motions of a pretend self-righteousness, but Lord, that we would seek earnestly to ask of you, Lord, what do you have for me to hear today? Lord, I just pray for us that we would be true followers of you in all respects. And Lord, I pray that we would realize the things that we need, but Lord, most importantly, we would realize the things that we must have is to hear from you, because from that, full faith in everything else. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the faithfulness of the people and their love for you and love for your work and your word. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.